So I've only known Father Sean for like a year. Um, but knowing Father Sean is kind of like having this friend that wants to go skydiving. And they tell you, and they're like, yeah, I want to go skydiving. And you're like, great, that's awesome for you. And then they ask you, like, what do you think about skydiving? And you're like, well, I mean, I don't know. i got to get my life insurance in order. Like, I'm not really sure. But then they're like, why don't you just come along with me, and you can just watch and fill it out. And then the next thing you know, you're jumping out of a plane at 10,000 feet in the air, hoping that the parachute opens. So here's to hoping that the parachute opens. (laughs) But seriously, though, I was actually really excited um, to have the opportunity to preach on these particular scriptures for Christ the King Sunday. Um, Because, you know, like all other Christians, Jesus is my jam. Um, My great love for Jesus in response to his great love for me is really the only reason that I would do this today. Um, And these... These scriptures in particular, this passage in Luke and this scene in the Bible, as gruesome and as hard to read as it is, combined with the scene that we know is coming, the empty tomb, is kind of like what it's all about, right? Um, The fact that God came down to earth in the human form of Jesus Christ to be hung and pierced and die on a wooden cross to reconcile all of humanity to himself is a really big deal. And hopefully we get just a little bit of a deeper understanding of that moment today. But in particular, I want to go back to the Luke passage for just a second. So here we have Jesus. He's on the cross. The crowd beneath him, the synagogue leaders, the Roman soldiers are mocking him. They're deriding him and actually unwittingly calling him by his rightful name as Messiah and King. And then in verse 39, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding and blaspheming him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself. Save us. So some of you know this already, and Father Sean already mentioned, but um, I'm currently in my second year in seminary. So last year, I took this Christian history course, and I had this professor who was, he had this like, really dry humor, but um, it was hilarious, but could also make you question like your entire life and everything you believed at the same time. I don't know, some people are really good at that. It's kind of wild. But anyways, he was brilliant. And um, one day he was talking about this particular passage and the two criminals on the cross. And he said something that really stood out to me, um, and I haven't forgotten it. He said, Jesus never turned to the other thief and said, and you won't. So I've heard the scripture pe- preached dozens of times over my, the course of my faith walk. And I would venture to say that most of those times, the sermon use, that uses the story, it kind of compares and contrasts the two thieves on the cross. And then this um, comparison leads the congregation to agree that the second criminal, who acknowledged his sin and humility and sought help from Jesus, was who we should aspire to live like. I believe most of us would agree that it's always best to humbly take responsibility for our wrongs and to seek God for help. I mean, I do. However, outside of this story, we don't actually know much about these two criminals. Only that one was a shining example of acceptance of Jesus and the other was 
not. So just for a bit today, I want us to consider the other thief. What do we actually know about this thief? Besides the fact that he was some sort of criminal, and we interpret that as thief, but we don't actually know what his crime was. We do know that crucifixion was reserved for those who were seen as a threat to the empire, who were violent, who were a danger to the community in some way. But I've often wondered what really brought this criminal to the cross with Jesus on that day. What was his life like before his crime, or at least before offending the Roman government? When I was teaching, I remember going to the seminar um, and learning about the connection between adverse childhood experiences and crime. So adverse childhood experiences are stressful or traumatic events, and they can include abuse and neglect, have high rates of witnessing community violence, racial discrimination, abandonment, and food insecurity, among other things. 90% of juvenile offenders in the United States have experienced some sort of traumatic event in childhood, and up to 30% of justice-involved youth meet the criteria for post-traumatic stress syndrome caused by trauma during their childhood. The Attorney General's task force says that children who do not feel safe in their own schools and neighborhoods may come to believe that violence is normal and relationships are just too fragile to trust. These kids may in turn commit criminal activities, to counteract feelings of despair and hopelessness. The benefit that we have in our society today is that there are people out there dedicated to doing this type of research. They're dedicated to figuring out what contributing factors might make someone prone to a life of crime, what might make someone feel so much despair and powerlessness that they resort to violent activity and even deride or distrust anyone who might actually be there to help them. In the year 33 CE, there were no researchers interested in this. So it would be easy back then to look at a criminal found guilty of some crime, sentenced to crucifixion, and have no compassion for them. It would be easy to say they deserve that consequence. And even with the information that we have access to now, it's easy for us today to agree with them, to pass judgment, to withhold compassion, to make the other thief the bad one, the condemned one, without even knowing the rest of his story. And how often that in looking from the outside, we don't know the whole of someone's story. We don't always know the reason for a person's anger or disdain or rage at God, at the church, or at others. We don't know that it may be coming from a place of despair, frustration, powerlessness. Like a young man that I knew, left to fend for himself after the incarceration of a parent and the neglect of another, who with one mistake as a newly turned 18-year-old, now carries a felony with him everywhere. 
one who has not been able to get housing, work, or even participate in changing the system in his state with a vote, who begins to believe that no one cares, that maybe God is not listening. So the only way for him to survive is to go back to a life of crime, and in this, his despair, he might also scream at Jesus, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself, save us. I know women dealing with infertility whose only prayer to God for years and years has been that he bless them with a child of their own, or second, or third, who beg and plead and promise to sacrifice nearly anything to have that desire fulfilled. And month after month passes with fertility clinic visits and doctor's appointments and hope that rises only to be shot down from the sky with negative results on pregnancy test after pregnancy test. And then in the seemingly most unjust piece of this whole ordeal, the very real pain from the pit of their stomach as they watch their friends and neighbors and coworkers announce their pregnancies for the whole world to see on Facebook and Twitter and all of the social media. Women who in the whole of their despair begin to trust, distrust God and scream at Jesus, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself, save us. And perhaps you even see part of yourself in these stories or ones like them too. Maybe you too have felt that level of anger and despair or hopelessness that anyone can help or that anyone even wants to help. What took you to that place? Maybe it was a critical diagnosis or the death of a loved one, a long and drawn out battle with mental illness, or marriage on the brink of ending despite years and years of counseling. A time that even if Jesus came near, the only words you might be able to utter were words of derision and the scream of your prayers crying out, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself. Save us. I would argue that at any one point in our lives, we too have been or will be the other thief on the cross. And with that revelation, we'd be in good company. Elie Wiesel, the Jewish author, philosopher, and Holocaust survivor, told a story about how when he was 15 and a prisoner at Auschwitz, he watched three Jewish scholars imprisoned with him put God on trial for his indifference to the suffering of his people. They had people on the defense, they had representing God, and they had several prosecutors. After hearing all the arguments in the trial, they found God guilty. After the verdict, Wiesel says, there was silence. And then everyone who had participated sat down to do their evening prayers. Ellie wrote a play about this experience called The Trial of God, and one director who put on the play wrestled with the story's meaning, and she gave her interpretation. 
she said, and I'm paraphrasing a little, not even God is good enough to justify killing or justify suffering. God exists. He is here. I respect and I serve, but that will not prevent me from shouting, how can you make us suffer? Like the Jewish scholars who put God on trial, maybe the other thief took a look at the suffering in his life and did the same. And in lumping Jesus in with himself, he did indeed find him guilty. Then he shouted that verdict in his derision and in his blasphemies. Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself. Save us. The Hebrew word for blaspheme is nakav, and that can mean to pierce or puncture, literally or figuratively. So even as Jesus was pierced physically on the cross, the other thief, in his anger and despair, was piercing with his words. But in this passage, Jesus never turns to the other thief and says, but not you, or even rebukes him. He simply takes the piercing in silence. And I believe, just as Christ offered forgiveness to the soldiers below, just a few verses before, when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, he held space for forgiveness and acceptance of the other thief. And y'all, this is the good news. As a king pronouncing his ruling, Jesus, from his cross-shaped throne, holds space for us too. Even in our bitter questioning, our unbelief, our anger and confusion, as we ourselves in the pits of our despair cry out, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself. Save us. He takes that pain into himself on the cross. And in return, as our verse from Colossians today says, he leaves us grace and strength so that we may be able to endure everything with patience and have the opportunity to be reconciled to God through the blood of his cross. As we take a moment of silence to invite the Holy Spirit to speak, let us be reminded today that no matter where we are and what questions we have, the answer to those questions and our eternal salvation can be found at the table today in the body and blood of Christ our King. Amen.